Let's turn our Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And follow along as I read verses 13 to 20. Little ones in the church, we've got the Pew Bibles there on page 580, page number 580 in the Pew Bible is where you'll find where we're at as a church. We're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. Let us hear the word of the Lord. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Well, we come to the third message in this passage of Scripture, and I think it's patently clear for us the intention that's described in verse 11 of the inspired writer is that he is pulling out everything he can to help these early Christians persevere and press forward in the profession of faith that they have made. He's very concerned, we know from verse 1, that there are some who um, are being, you could say, possibly deceived or confused about how they are made right with God, how they are justified with God. That came out in verses 1 and 2. They're tempted perhaps to be confused with conflating or confusing the covenant arrangement that they are now under that they would have received an understanding of through the preaching of the gospel when perhaps this writer or one of the other early gospel evangelists would have preached to them. The early apostles we know, especially from the sermon and Acts from Stephen, they use the covenant awareness of the Jews to reveal the mysterious gospel that now is being manifested through the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal, incarnated, begotten Son of the Father. And so, he last week, we, we, we noticed how he was trying to encourage them that coming into and pressing forward into this high calling of being a new covenant member is going to require much faith, it's going to require much patience, it's going to require much endurance. It's not going to be easy. So therefore, the pressures that he's going to allude to later on in this letter to them that they were experiencing was to be expected. He used the example of a pilgrim that has went before them that they were familiar with, Abraham, uh, to try to help them to understand the reality that they were now going to encounter, which was going to be trials and afflictions. Abraham, we looked at his promise in depth uh, two messages ago, and we saw that Abraham had eyes of faith. He, he could look through the physical realities that was promised to him in the covenant arrangement that God made with him to the, the spiritual truth of those things. And I believe that's why he was bringing up 
Father Abraham to these early Jews to help them to see that you too in this covenant that you're part of, which he's about to in chapter 7 begin to expand and then in chapter 8 culminate in this announcement that it is a better covenant. He was trying through Abraham to show them that Father Abraham also partook of this covenant that you are partaking of through faith and thereby he could see through the temporal, the conditional aspects of the covenant arrangement that God made with him, and he could see the spiritual realities. He could see, we pointed out, that foundation, that city whose maker and builder was God. And so all of this brings us today to an aspect of this passage that I think truly is the most important aspect of the passage that the writer is attempting to get across in order to appeal to their profession of faith, that they hold fast to it, and that it's going to be certain, and it's going to be sure, it's going to be an anchor, despite everything that's going to come afterwards. And that is, it is made certain, it's made sure by the oath, or that is the word covenant of God. And so this is where I'm getting my sermon title for today, the guarantee of the promise. First, we looked at the promise made to Abraham, and then we looked at in our second message, pursuing that promise. And now lastly, we're going to really get down to the core of the promise, and that is it finds its guarantee in God himself. The guarantee of the promise, God's unchanging promise and oath. I want us to consider this in three headings. The first one is Oath and Covenant. Oath and Covenant. There's a lot of mentioning here in this passage of swearing, of oath, and it's a very important beginning point to get these Christians to understand what it is they're to hope in. What's going to help them get through all of these trials and afflictions that's going to require patience, endurance, and much faith? And we're first introduced to that idea of oath in verse 13 when he says, For when God made promises to Abraham because he, God, could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Now, when we were in our first message going through the promise of Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham, we looked at this swearing of God. And it culminates in Genesis chapter 22. That's when Abraham passes the test, you could say, of his faith, where he was ready to sacrifice his only begotten son. And God said to him there, he said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sands which are upon the seashore. God had already mentioned that promise several times to Abraham, and then it culminates as if it were after this great trial in this oath where he swears by himself that I'm going to bind myself to fulfilling this promise to bring about all of those after you who will believe in me and they're going to multiply as as many as the stars of the heaven and the the sand of the sea. So we, we explored that a lot. And so the reason that it's brought into verse number 13, it's important for us to see, is that God did this as a framework we were mentioning in our reading of Jeremiah that he's going to operate within to bring about his glory and his redemptive purpose through this former devil worshiper, Abraham. God comes to him, he establishes that, and God is demonstrating here that he does establish covenants with men. We had the benefit today, as I mentioned, by providence to go through Jeremiah 11, and it gave us an opportunity to look at the covenant that God made with Moses as a head or representative of the nation of Israel. Here, in our first message with Father Abraham, we saw that God was making this covenant with him that, yes, as a federal representative, you could say as a head of a people, which would come in physical descendants, it meant much more that Abraham was, in a way, representing, uh, as Galatians teaches us, 
the, the father of many believers too, right? And so it was important for us to see that there is a reality which God does condescend and come down to man and establish these arrangements, these frameworks by which he's going to bring out his redemptive purposes. And so this writer is bringing this aspect of oaths, God swearing, the fidelity of God that these first century Jews would have known and been very familiar with to help present a point that's very important that he wants to serve as an anchor for them as they're being tempted to go back to the old covenant economy, i.e. verses 1 and then the, the subsequent warnings. He's bringing in this covenant language, this, these familiar uh, covenantal arrangements that God has made in redemptive history with their forefathers in order to move forward in his pressing them to not lose hope, to press them to understand that, that God is still operating within a covenant context. He's, you know, he, he is inspired by the Spirit to very purposefully and very strategically now bring into his message to them this concept that they would have been familiar with and to help them to understand God hasn't abandoned all those operations and systems by which he relates and commits himself to his people. No, 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 he hasn't done that. In fact, he is still doing that. And that's what he's going to flesh out for him in the preceding verses. So he brings up Abraham and he brings up this particular aspect in the covenant with Abraham of God uh, with his word swearing and binding himself in this covenant arrangement, this legal arrangement that, that he's going to do something for Abraham moving forward in redemptive history. And in fact, when we go through the Bible, we're not going to do it extensively. And I think that would be a good Sunday school uh, series. But if we were to go through the Bible, we would see that God uses oaths many times. And when he attaches to that oath of promise, it becomes a legal covenant, a compact. And he does all of this to bring about his redemptive purposes and also to bring glory unto himself. And the very first time that he announced as if it were a promise, was in Genesis 3.15. And now we call this in, in Latin, uh, as, theolo- as, as the, in theology, the proto-evangelium, the, the first announcement of the good news. You remember that when God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, here's the, here's the promise, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So God is saying, I will do something. He's given his word there. He's committed himself to doing something, isn't he? Between thee and thy woman, between thy seed and her seed. And here's the promise. It shall bruise the seed, the head of the serpent. And the serpent shall bruise his heel. And when we look in scripture, while there is a lot of covenants, there are certain covenants that give a distinctive framework in the Old Testament to God working out this promise, to God revealing by covenant, by a covenant arrangement, how he's bringing about the Messiah to come and crush the head of the serpent, eventually whom we know is the Son, the Lord Jesus, who does it finally upon the cross. Amen? That first covenant arrangement, many theologians, and I agree with this, is the Edemic covenant. And this begins in the garden. When God comes, doesn't he? He comes from his place in the heavenly realms. He is the divine one, the creator, Yahweh. He's outside of creation. He comes to creation with Adam and he makes an arrangement with Adam, doesn't he? That's largely identified as the covenant of works. Some theologians get, they, 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 they quibble a little bit about that. Some say it's the covenant of life, etc., etc. But the, there's no sense of change in language, the covenant of works. And then redemptive history goes on. There's the Noahic covenant where God makes an oath He binds himself to his word that he will never flood the earth again, doesn't he? And then there's the Abrahamic covenant we talked about. And then we talked about in Jeremiah this morning, Old Testament reading, about the Mosaic covenant in verse 11. And then again in the Davidic covenant. And then as he's going to be expounding in great capacity in the book of Hebrews, the new covenant. Now, the reason all of this matters, as I alluded to earlier, is that this First century Jewish audience would have been very familiar with the purpose and the youths 
and the usage of oaths and covenants. And he's doing that, as I said, to appeal to them that God hasn't abandoned them. He won't abandon them. Why? Because he's going to show an amendment. He's bound himself covenantally to a certain arrangement. And you know, as he's demonstrated himself faithful in the past, he will also do in the future. And secondly, he's bringing that into the conversation because he wants to begin to help them understand more of a structure of how they can find certainty in this new pronounced inaugurated covenant arrangement through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Yes, they would have been familiar with the prophecies of Jeremiah that this was coming. They would have been familiar with the patriarchs like Abraham were looking forward to its arrival. Remember Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and and rejoiced in it. They would have been familiar with that. And now he's saying, it has come. And God's not going to abandon that. And so therefore, I'm going to help you to understand a little bit more about how this is structured since you have been so conditioned your entire existence as Jews, the centuries before in all of these other various covenant arrangements, you have been so conditioned to think that it's predicated and based upon you And therefore, that's why in verse 1, chapter 6, some of you are in danger of abandoning the profession and the confession of faith that you receive through the gospel, the true gospel, of going back to that. So now here, I'm going to give you now, he's saying, a little bit more tools to work with to understand exactly what we meant when we preach to you that the new covenant through Christ that God had always promised has arrived. The Messiah is here. And He did that which none of the other uh, sacrifices could ever do. I'm going to help you now. I'm going to give you a little bit more uh, nuts and bolts of what this looks like. And so this is why He's bringing into this discussion, you could say, this pronouncement, this declaration in His sermonic letter, the idea of covenants and oaths. Think with me for a moment, and we alluded to it just momentarily in the Jeremiah 11 reading. Consider with me briefly, first of all, in verse number 13, that God come to Abraham. Okay? We call that a a voluntary condescension of God. Get your hymnals. This is one thing I like about our hymnals because we can turn to stuff like this. Go to the back, page 674. Um... Just to notice before we get into the nuts and bolts of this covenant, this oath that's being described here, beginning in verse 13, and then really unfolded and unpacked in verse 17, let's just first of all humble ourselves. Can we that um, God voluntarily condescended down to man to do this? God didn't have to do this. In his, what we call a Sadie, he had everything within himself, the Bible teaches, which we'll look at in a minute. In a minute. He didn't need to do this. But notice uh, right there um, in our Confession of Faith. Uh, It's chapter 7, page 674, paragraph 1 of God's covenant. Because that's really what we're seeing in Scripture here today, right? We're seeing that this is what we confess to believe Scripture portrays and and, and Scripture proclaims. is this covenant. And it begins with this idea at the bottom. I see some of you, yeah, our hymnals are a little funny. They got the page numbers and then you go back and they they change a little bit. But here we are at 674. At the uh, 1689 London Confession of Faith. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, Yet they could never have obtained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. This voluntary condescension. Beloved, let us just soak in for a minute the need for this. We read in Acts 17, 24-25, where the Word of God says something about God that shows us, oh, of course it's completely voluntarily on His part. He's fine within and of Himself. He doesn't need us, we need Him. Amen? God that made the world, the Bible says, and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, 
dwelleth not in the temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing that he, only he, Yahweh, gives to all life and breath and all things. This scripture, when we go elsewhere in the Bible, is demonstrating just that God is all self-sufficient. Right? doesn't need us. But when we see that, and we're reading anything about covenants, it ought to remind us of our complete dependency upon Him to take the first step, to take the first course of action when we begin to talk about covenants. So what we're talking about right now would just been the very first aspects of the gospel that these first century Jews would have been uh, uh, taught in, in the presentation of the gospel. Remember, you know, brethren, they would have been, they would have said, the creator God of all the heavens and earth. He come and spoke the world into existence, etc., etc. He is God. We are creatures. We have sinned. We are fallen. He and his aseity, he is all sufficient. He doesn't need to do, take one step and do anything. He doesn't need to redeem us all, but in his glory, he promised us a Messiah, so forth and so forth. So before we even start talking about covenants, we have to first humble ourselves and recognize that the one who's arranged these covenants and made a way is the holy, perfect, glorious God. The distance between us, I like how our confession said, and, and the Bible also portrays, is immeasurable. God has to come to us. He had to come to Abraham. Job recognizes this in chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, where he says in one translation, He is not a mere mortal like us as man, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. And what's Job doing? He's just recognizing this immense distance that's between him as creaturely man and Yahweh as creator God. I think that this voluntary condescension of God down to man in order that covenant could be established, in order that to bring about redemptive history is a necessary first step of the first thing we see about the particular oath that's being spoken of here in our passage today. And it comes through in verse 17. And it is that this oath This swearing of God to bring about a particular promise. Beloved, it was mediated by Him. So there's this this voluntarily condescension of God by which now He's going to not just have this covenant, this plan, but He's actually going to mediate it. He's actually going to communicate it. He's actually going to bring it into action. This is what we see in verse 17. God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater. He swear by himself. Yes, God makes covenant with men. And verse 14, you have a repetition of a part of that promise to Abraham. And after Abraham patiently endured, he obtained that promise. Men barely swear by the greater an oath for confirmation. It is to them an end of all strife. So even us... We make arrangements and, and we make a great agreements, but they're only held together by a witness or by someone outside that's greater than both of us that will hold us accountable to it. And this is why a lot of times we write up legal contracts. Uh, we take oaths in swearing before penal courts, uh, judicial courts, and the punishment is there's authority above us that will hold us accountable if we don't tell the truth or it's found out we don't hold the truth. Verse 17 we come with this idea of this voluntary condensation because God is the one who mediates this out of his own will wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise Abraham and all those of the faith the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by I know some of your modern translations will have that word confirmed translated interposed but it literally means in the Greek, to act as a mediator between litigating or covenanting partners. And so, God, of course, is coming down to man. He has to voluntarily do it. There's nothing outside of him that he needs to make him do it. And he does so, but he actually, in this covenant that's being talked about here, he is the one who mediates it. He's the one who confirms it. 
It's just not floating out there. It's actually something that he energizes. He makes effectual. Right? He brings it into reality. He voluntarily comes down in order to do this covenant that's supposed to point us to the anchor of the hope that we're supposed to walk in unto the end. It's the framework, you could say, that's going to help us. The mediation of God's love to us as the heirs of promise in itself provides this that, that truth that we just read. It provides, doesn't it, much nourishment of our faith? Oh, yes, I read here in the Bible that just as God condescended down to Abraham in this oath that we're considering here, which we're going to get into in a moment, which oath is it? He's, he's condescending down and he also mediates this one. So yes, that this is God and no one is greater than God. And so yes, that nourishes my soul. It blesses me. I know that he's the author of it and it does bring much blessing and we do receive much nourishment from it. However, we see next, or we're going to see next, that for the glory of his own namesake and to promote within us, as our passage talks about a strong confidence, notice that in verse 17 where it says, God willing, willingly, more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel mediated it. God willing more abundantly That word willingly that's translated there could be properly translated determined. So God was determined more abundantly to show unto you and I the unalterableness, the unchangeableness of his counsel and mediated this covenant, this oath that's connected with the promise in the previous chapters in order to give us a strong consolation. Now, All of these words swollen around here are really best illustrated, I think, when we when we when we put them out. I was there's so much in this passage. But when you look at verse 17, and you understand that the willing is really properly understood as God having a determinative purpose in it, and it's rooted in his counsel, then we get in a way. A symbol, I think we'll get rid of this one. A symbol or a graph that could look something like this. So I'm going to call this circle God's counsel. Okay? And and in that counsel, I did this the other day and I was like, I'm going to need my notes here. In this counsel, God is got a determination, a will, to express it by way of covenant. And we're saying this because we see the aspects or the elements of the covenant in the passage, do we not? We see God swearing and we see promise. We have a promise and we have God's oath. So what's being discussed here is nothing less than a covenant. But then we have, in verse 17, a council. And the council, these three C's, can be taken, and it's properly to to, to interpret this way, it can be taken as a plurality of persons in the council. Now we're we're hearing perhaps the Trinity going on here, right? That's That's a good interpretation. Or, in its most basic sense, it could mean just a deliberation. Right? A council taking place, a deliberation. That's what, the, that's what the Greek shows. Now, we see in verse 17, this mediated, purposeful, determined council coming through as something that God is going to guarantee by His own word And we see this being played out in other places in Scripture where God shows us that this is how he operates. For instance, go to the book of Acts with me. We'll go to Acts 2 first. Where we see God deliberating, God having counsel, and the purpose of that counsel is to reveal 
His decreative, determined will. Both of these passages we're going to go to are dealing with the, the, uh, the death of the Son, the Lord Jesus. Look at verse two, or chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, go back to t- verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel. You see that? There it is again. Here's this idea of a determined, willful purpose and counsel of God to bring about a purpose. Here we see it's the, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And so the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, we're learning here, we're not here for this purpose, but it wasn't an accident. It was according to the decree to purpose and counsel of God. And we're going to see in a moment what's so beautiful is that all of this is connected with this oath here today that's supposed to be in some way, shape, or form. We're going to see it itself is not the anchor of hope, but it certainly is related to it. This shows through again in chapter 4. Go to chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. And all we're doing here is we're just seeking to understand some of the words which you have to understand in verse 17 to really see how and what the writer is trying to show us of how God operates with regards to the salvation of his church, which is supposed to inspire us unto the end and give us an anchor of hope. Okay, So look at chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For a truth against thy holy child... Uh, We've got to go back up to 26, sorry. Verse 26. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his Messiah. For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Be done. All of this is showing us and proving to us what Paul confirms in Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things according to the counsel, the deliberation, the determination of His own will. Okay? So that, all that little exercise was just for that purpose. To see that when we come back to chapter 6, verse 17, God has a determinative purpose to more abundantly reveal, show, Unto the heirs of promise, them who are reading this, us today, who are hoping and looking with Father Abraham to the same promise, he has this determinative purpose of showing us the immutability of his counsel, which is eternal, which isn't made up on the fly, and then he mediates it through a covenant. And all of this is working and helping us to understand something of God's fidelity and His covenant-bound operations so that we know, we can be certain that the promise that we're pursuing is really going to come to fruition and be true. To help us furthermore more abundantly, to use verse 17 language, to understand this, he uses this, ad, this adjective concerning this counsel of God, which is mediated through an oath, through a covenant. He uses, you see in your Bibles, the word immutable, meaning it's unalterable. And this is showing something not only of this oath, not only of this counsel that's taken place, that's been mediated, that's been revealed, but it's showing something about God's nature Himself. That's who it's established upon. God doesn't change. We change as creatures. You know, definitely those of us who are going through certain parts of life right now, our bodies really begin to change. Um, but God's not like that. He's immutable. He's unalterable. The writer's use of this adjective is showing us that He is going to great lengths to help them to understand that the covenant that you now rest in 
it rests upon the nature of God's unalterableness and also the immutability or the unchangeableness of His word and His oath. Malachi verse, chapter 3, verse 6 is a great text to go, through, go to to just really announce the fact that God is different from us. He doesn't change. There the Scripture says, For I, the Lord, do not change. I do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, you ought to be thankful, he says, that you're not consumed. I do not change. Now, if we, we don't have time, but I was thinking, you know, we could just sit back and consider the many blessings that comes with the immutability or the unalterableness, the unchangeableness of God. He's not short-tempered. Um, he's long-suffering. Uh, he's not, you know, well, I was going to say hot-headed, that's kind of the same thing. Um, he's, he's, he's not um, cold and, and without mercy. No, he's, he's very merciful. He exhibits that in Scripture. There's so many blessings that come with this. And so when we come to this right here, we see most of all are what we ought to find comfort in. And I think what the inspired writer indeed is trying to convey here is that it's his faithfulness. It is his faithfulness that is unchangeable, that's immutable. Now, when we get to the point here now, he's successfully demonstrated that what it is that he is trying to encourage them in the unchangeable desire of God to show unto them the security of this promise is brought about, it's mediated through verse 17 by an oath, by a covenant. So this comes down to the aspect of really drawing to focus, verses 18 to 20, the surety or the certainty of this covenant. But first of all, before we move any further, what oath is he talking about? What covenant specifically here was God willing, determined, more abundantly, to reveal or to convey or mediate to us the heirs of promise, which is unchangeable as it's connected to His counsel, that's been confirmed and mediated. Which one is it? Some modern interpreters. They want us to believe that he's still talking about the Abrahamic covenant mentioned in verse 13. Now, let's just say that that is within the immediate context. So we just can't lightly dismiss that. They would have us to believe that what's being spoken about here that's supposed to be the anchor of our soul is the Abrahamic covenant but not the Abrahamic covenant in whole, because you remember when we went through that message of the promise made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, you remember there were a lot of different aspects to the covenant promised to Abraham. There were a lot of different promised blessings. One of those, which is the pinnacle of, of, of the entire covenant made with Abraham, was the promise of the, the seed, singular, right? that would uh, crush the head of the serpent. That's what everyone was looking for. That's what everyone was hoping for. And so some commentators come to this passage and they go, that's the oath he's talking about. It's talking about the Abraham covenant and specifically it's talking about Jesus who's coming and Jesus that has arrived and established the new covenant because look, Jesus is brought up again in uh, verses 19 and 20. So that's talking about the Abrahamic covenant and particularly that one particular aspect and promise of it. However, there's another interpretation of what oath is being talked about here. And I think if you get this right, I think that when we work and, and we see, as we've kind of just labored a little bit here, just understanding covenantal framework, covenantal or legal arrangements with God, and redemptive history, so forth and so forth, when you get this, and you see this, if indeed we handle it the correct way, beloved, it, it, it is an anchor of the soul. It is that which is not going to allow you to go too far. So here it is. Many of the older writers, they say that what's going on here with the council, divine council, that's in view here, that's unchangeable, which is being revealed and confirmed by an immutable promise and oath by God, is the promise in the oath that was declared in Psalm 110 verse 4, 
with reference to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So let's just go there real quick. We've already looked at this once, as you'll see in a moment once you see it. Go to Psalms 110.4. They're saying this is the covenant that's being revealed to. This is a psalm of the inspired David. Psalms 110. We've got to read it down to verse 4. The Lord said unto my Lord. Now, we've already had it, and there's no disagreement in all of Christianity that who's being referred to here is Jesus Christ. David's saying, the Lord. You see it all capital letters there. You know, he's not referring to himself. He's not referring to another man or another king that's going to come after him in a uh, natural, humanly way. The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of your power in the beauties of, the, of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who swore there? Who gave his oath? That the coming greater son of David would be a priest after the, the order of Melchizedek. Well, it's Yahweh. Isn't it? Yahweh did that. Yahweh swore. He gave a covenant oath that he would come and that he would be the, 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 the ruling priest, the ruling king, after the order of Melchizedek. And so the older writers say, no, no, no. He's referring to that covenant that the Lord Yahweh made to bring Jesus to be the priest. And you say, well, you know, Pastor Doug, what's, what's the difference there? Well, before we get to the difference or why that matters, think for a moment that this is the most consistent and reasonable interpretation, particularly in light of the fact that in our most immediate context that we have right here surrounding Hebrews chapter 6, the inspired writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 6, quoted Psalms 110.4 verbatim. And then... He makes another allusion to Psalms 110.4, surprisingly in chapter 7, dealing with Melchizedek, when he says in chapter 7, verse 28, The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath. What oath? The oath given in Psalms 110.4. He quotes Psalms 110.4 in chapter 5. He brings into chapter 7 the whole doctrine of Melchizedek, the high priest. And then in chapter 7, verse 28, specifically, he says the word of the oath, which was, since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. That's Psalms 110.4 language. The Son, the Lord, Yahweh, He, he consecrated the, His eternal Son to be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, beloved, I'm telling you the most consistent and reasonable interpretation of the oath being described here is an eternal oath. It's an eternal covenant that the Father has made regarding His Son to be not only Messiah, but High Priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, have we seen anything that would tip the hat that we're properly making and connecting dots with proper interpretations is, well, of course, of course we are. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. He, he has already revealed all of this. And chapter 1, speaking of and drawing out a proper understanding of the eternal Son in relationship to the Father and the purposes of the Father. We went through all that in chapter 1. That's all that was all about. And then you get to chapter 2, and you go to verses nine, um, chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 18, beloved, and you're right there in Hebrews. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should take death for every man. For it became him, this is Yahweh, we already dealt with this, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons of glory, to make the captain of the salvation... The Son, who in Psalms 110.4 is consecrated eternally forevermore, 
the captain of their salvation, perfect or complete through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and he who are sanctified are all one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare uh, thy name unto thy brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Beloved, this is the oath. This is... Do, do, do we actually want to try to interpret and handle the Word of God to think that this is all being found out as it's happening or transpiring? Don't you see the etern- eternality of the council that's being referred to in chapter 17? The, the writer of Hebrews is wanting to see, you know, everything that, I, that we preach to you and everything I just got in writing about what was agreed upon the Father giving the Son a people and the Son coming into time, space, space, and history and being made complete and perfect and finished with that council they had. He's saying to them, this has all been made possible. It's been made a reality, not on the whim, but based upon a framework, a legal framework, which was made certain by the unchangeable God's word and oath. And so I think that the interpretation that this is referring, this oath here in verse 17 is referring to the Abrahamic covenant and the specific aspect of Jesus coming through that Abrahamic covenant, I think is missing the mark some, some, some way. Because it, it loses, I believe, that sense of the internality of the council, which then ought to amplify for us the sure fixed plan of God in all redemptive history. Taking consider well, we just did that. All, all unlike the other covenants which God made with men, this covenant alluded to in Psalms one ten, I think, greatly expounded in Hebrews chapter two, is eternal. It's mysterious. It's a covenant arrangement which is being focused focused upon here for us in verse seventeen. The eternal covenant between God the Father. And God the Son, that I will make you the not only Messiah, but the high priest, the promised high priest that will take away the sins of the people forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the reason it, it, it matters, I think, is that we recognize this this way. It's because in all of the other covenant arrangements that we see in the Old Testament, they have connected with them a condition that's based upon the performance of man. But in this way, in this way, there's only two people involved in this covenant. There's only two people involved in the unchangeable counsel that took place, that's been revealed, that's been media, that's been confirmed by this covenant. And it is the eternal Son and the eternal Father. And if this is correct, if we're understanding this the right way, the result is, is it not a strong encouragement. It's not God's sworn promise with a man. It's God's sworn promise with the Son. Okay? So, what's the strong uh, anchor to our souls then? If, if we agree that we're rightly understanding here what this oath is, this covenant arrangement is, what is the, what's the anchor of the soul? Well, let's, let's just flush it out now, going down through verses 18 and 20. This oath, by two immutable things, unchangeable things, what are the two immutable things? The council that took place. I'm of the persuasion that's the, the council between the Godhead and the Trinity. That can't, that's unchangeable. That's God's nature. And also this oath, this covenant that was made between the Father and the Son is unchangeable. These two things, these two immutable things in verse 17, which is it impossible for God to lie, i.e. His immutability, His unchangeableness, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on, it's our only hope, we've expounded this before, this is our only hope as pilgrims, the hope that's set before us, i.e. chapter 2, verses 9 through 18, that this is true, 
that everything that we talked about there, that the, the, the Father agreed with the Son, that He would give them, the Son would come, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entered into that within the veil. Now, he's bringing into here the first mentioning of Old Testament, Old Covenant ceremonial sacrifices and processes. Up until this point of this epistle, we haven't had any kind of temple talk yet, right? But right here, he's quoting specifically Leviticus 16. So follow closely because what I'm, what I'm saying to you is that in the text, our hope is not necessarily this. Where's my notes? Where's my graph? It's not necessarily the nature of God's immutability. That's not, that's not it. We definitely derive a lot of hope from that. And we definitely are blessed by that. Right? Our anchor of our hope isn't even that God has not abandoned legally binding Himself as He's done in all redemptive history in a covenantal framework by which we know we can find certainty that if one party does one thing, God will do the other. And we just revealed the fact that this is between the Father and the Son. So if Christ does what He does, then God is bound legally to then give Jesus a people. It's not even necessarily that. What it is, what it is, praise be to God as we're about to approach the communion table, the Lord's Supper. The hope we have as an anchor of the soul, soul both sure and steadfast, which entered in that within the veil, is the forerunner, and it is for us already entered, Jesus. Jesus, the obedient Son, the covenant-keeping fulfiller of the oath. Beloved, He is the anchor of our soul. So, I kind of map it out like this. We see counsel, we see covenant, we see mediation. A, a confirmed pronouncement that this is who I am as the immutable God. This is my immutable word. I have made an arrangement by which you can have certain salvation. And He makes that known to us. I'm going to do a triangle. I did this this morning because the triangle, you guys know, and I'm not the best at this, but in the way geometry, Tyler, you, this is your first week back to school. You can, maybe you're getting into this. But you know, like the triangle is designed, this is a really bad triangle, but if you press on any side, it doesn't change, does it? I mean, it's strong. That's, that's the force of the triangle. Work with me. Illustration is always going to break down to some degree. So this is the unchangeableness of this, right? And it's decreed. This is his decreed purpose and his will, which equals in something that's entirely unalterable. But as he reveals this immutable arrangement, to all of the church, all of the church, not just our church, all churches. I'm putting little buildings here because they do typify the fact that the true church of Christ, uh, while it is many men and women, they do gather in an ecclesia, right? But for some reason in our culture, that has to be reminded of. The, the anchor of the hope, it, it's not the immutability of the revelation, it's not that. And, and, and it's not even the uh, decree knowing that there's a purpose in God's doing it. That's not the anchor of our hope. What the text is pointing to us, if, if I could allow this to represent the Trinity, what it's representing for us is Jesus as the forerunner has went within the veil right here. He's accomplished it. It's anchored in Christ who has the forerunner accomplished this covenant on our behalf for the glory of His Father, for the glory of His name. Amen? That's, that's our hope. And it's anchored within the eternal triune counsel of God. And so, as He's about to go into chapter 7, 
and really help them to see how that Jesus Christ was that once and for all promised sacrificial Messiah and Lamb. He has done that which none of us could do as we stand in the shadow of the Old Covenant being reminded, no, I can't do it. I'm reminded again and again every year I can't do it. You first century Jews, you remember your your history and your past. Look away from that because the forerunner who has went and accomplished on our behalf that which eternity past was agreed to has done it. And in his sacrifice as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which he's going to go into, we can find certainty. Certainty. So don't you ever dare He's telling them, heightening the warnings now. Notice it's just not coincidence that all this is at the end of chapter 6 that began with harsh warnings. Don't you ever, ever entertain looking away from that right there. Don't get your eye off that. You can, yes, yes, talk about this. Amen. Talk about these glorious things of Yahweh and the triune God. And yes, yes, but God has ultimately, the triune God, beloved, has He not made Himself known? His will has been revealed to us through the Son, through Christ Jesus our Lord. I love it. Back to what E.J. was saying this morning. What did Jesus say and what did He do? The New Testament is interpreting all of the Old Testament for us. Through Christ. Through Christ. What is happening here, and the reason we are a little challenged by some of these, you know, uh, concepts, covenant arrangements and things of like this, is because, you know, we're not first century people, and these things were more common them, especially we're not first century Jews who would have understood, as I said, a lot of these covenantal concepts and things like that. But it is, uh, at the end of this message, we need to recognize, it's in within, it's, it is within this complex, right? Uh, Brother Grace, you do, well, not used to, you deliver things to warehouses, and warehouses are in a complex of warehouses. There's this big field, and they're going to build different warehouses, and we call that a complex of warehouses. Well, in this complex, right, we've got a Bible here, there's in this complex, the Bible, many covenants. And it's within this complex of covenants that the inspired writer at the end of the message here now, that the writer is wanting to point them to and understand that Jesus Christ is at the very center of the covenant that God has been all throughout redemptive history promising. He has, as a forerunner, accomplished that which was done through his, his obedience, his death, his burial, and his resurrection going in the, in the, into the veil, chapter 1, sitting now at the right hand of the Father. It is finished. It is finished. I was reading this work this week by an old particular Baptist and he was talking about how sometimes we miss in our proclamation of the gospel that important phrase upon Calvary. It is finished. It's a good news of something that eternally was agreed upon and in time, space, and history was accomplished But as the text says, the lamb being slain before the foundations of the world was all within the scheme of God to bring you to this place today. When you look at the big picture as verses 13 and 20 are doing today, you ought to have strong confidence that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who made this covenant arrangement with the Father, Enacted, obeyed, performed everything exactly to a T. It all rests on Him. And it's finished. It's finished. Praise be to God that He has given us His Son and not us to do what we could not do in this glorious covenant which theologians call the covenant of grace. It is holy of grace. There is only two parties, the Father and the Son. The Son is the representative of all the children who the Father gave to Him. And so in His, what we call, impeccability of Christ, 
being God, there is no way it could ever be broken because He is God of God. He is light of light. Amen? He represents all those who through repentance and faith come to Him in this glorious covenant. There is not one representation in this covenant of a man, even a redeemed man, a man who's been converted. It, the covenant of grace, is set apart then from every other covenant in the Bible. And as I said in Jeremiah 11, they may have elements of grace in them because God is gracious. They always had that principle that was going to be satisfied by something they did. Ah, but not this oath. That's why in chapter 8 he gets to it and he says, it's a better covenant. I want to say in closing, does this then give us the aspect or the idea that the Old Testament saints weren't partakers of this? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because we go back to our very first message to establish that Abraham saw through the temporal realities of the physical covenant given to him because he had faith. God had given him by his sovereign grace saving faith and he was looking to what? The mediated covenant through the promised Messiah. And so were Isaac. And so were Jacob. And so, I, this, uh, uh, one, one pastor did this and I thought it was very helpful to me to see and maybe I've done it before. But it's as if you have two lines all throughout the Bible being revealed. This one is the covenant of grace that we've just been talking about. Now I'm calling it the covenant of grace. But you see, biblically, it's just it's the covenant of grace. It's, it's, it's in the Bible. It's the covenant. We give it that theological term. You're not going to find that term in the Bible. But hopefully today, you can wrestle with the things and say, yeah, that's, that's, that's biblical. But you see another covenant, or you see another line down here that's revealing a lot of the other covenant, the endemic covenant, the Noahic. That's AC. The endemic covenant. The Noahic covenant, right? The Abrahamic covenant. Um, help me out here. That, how about you guys? The Mosaic covenant. Uh, then the Davidic covenant. And then, this is where it gets tricky. Because the new covenant that's being spoken of here today, it's not new. It's not brand new. It just is being mediated. It's being confirmed through the Son. But as we saw today, it's not new. It's way back here. You remember the It's way back there, right? The eternal counsels of God, right? So this new covenant that's being revealed right here is running parallel along redemptive history. And it is nothing less than the covenant of grace established upon the arrangement between the Father and the Son. And there's some people who are down here on the earth, such as Abraham, who is both a member of this temporal covenant in order to bring about the redemptive purposes of God, a seed. Okay, guys, God could have just spoke a word and poof, he would have appeared in the form of a man, right? He could have done that. No, he didn't do that, though. He, he made a special arrangement with a physical people. Nothing special to him. I mean, Abraham was a devil worshiper. He's out there worshiping you know, pagan idols. God, he chose this path to bring about the seed to reveal his eternal plan that's being talked about in Hebrews 6, verse 17 today. So there's some people, Abraham, that are both a member of this covenant here, but they're also a member of this covenant. Not everybody down here was a member of this covenant. So we put a bunch of old dots down here representing all the people that were descendants of Abraham. We know that a great majority of them are staying down here, aren't they? Only those who trust in the promise given to God through Father Abraham are up here. Partakers have an interest in, have an ownership in this covenant blessing of belonging by the work of the Messiah, the Messiah alone, the covenant of grace. And i got to say it because I know you're thinking it. How could Abraham be partaking of the blessings of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ came, you know, uh, centuries later? Do, do we actually think that when we look at that big panoramic view of God's counsel, his purpose, etc., etc., that when the blood is shed, faith's Abraham, that Paul says he was saved by faith, not by works. If the blood that was shed here, and that will, we'll get to that eventually, the aspect of Christ's blood in the role of this covenant arrangement, 
that actually seals, it's his blood that seals the covenant. Uh, it wasn't really, the son didn't fulfill, really fulfill everything in the aspects of the covenant arrangement until the blood was spilled, right? But can, are we actually going to say that God had to wait to apply something that later on happened in time, space, and history on the account of Abraham for his sins? I love it. You've you got to get out of your human mind of being trapped in time. God's not like that. It was as if Christ's blood was shed from the foundations of the earth. And so when they covenanted in eternity past, it was as, as, as if it's already done. Redemptive history is not to teach God or reveal to God anything. It's to show His glory, His mercy, and His grace to you and I and all humanity. That's what redemptive history is all about. It's what the whole story is all about, guys. And that's what we're here today for. Worshiping the one true living God who planned that and has brought it all to this point and is still bringing people out of darkness into His glorious light. He is worthy of all of our praise. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You. Thank You, Father, for Your Word. Thank You, Father, that You, Lord, teach us through your word, much about yourself, much about, oh God, especially today, your desire, your will to manifest and to reveal to the heirs of promise, your church, your unchangeable oath and covenant that, oh, Father in heaven, in your wisdom and in all of your love, you compacted you arranged in a divine plan with your eternal Son that we may come to know you, every person here today. O oh Lord, we stand in awe and humility that you, as we mentioned earlier, like Father Abraham, would come down and voluntarily, Lord, call us out of this world into your covenant community. We are kept, we are preserved by the oath of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, who finished, O Lord, every aspect of the arrangement that He made with You, O Father, in eternity past. And as we stand covered by His blood, we can rest assured that it is finished. Let this, I pray, in the future for every saint gathered here today and even generations to come. Let this truth that we were privileged to consider together today, let it serve as an anchor for our souls. We are but flesh. And oh, Father, you know how weak and weary we are, how easily tempted we are. Oh, how prone to wonder we truly are. But where sin greatly abounds, I pray, O oh God, that you would remind us today that in this covenant, grace much more abounds. We bless you, Father, and we thank you in the name of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.